You can't manufacture joy and transformation. You can come up with a cheap gimmick that lasts for a little while before your issues and your problems overtake it and kind of drown it out. But when you've got something that just lifts you above what you're facing and everything trying to tear you down, that's walking on water, man. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And that's our reality. Amen? Amen. And we're going to be dealing with a a very serious issue today. uh, It's good that we even ended worship on that high note because we're not going to go down at all with this. We're going to get in the dirt a little bit. We're going to talk about some real issues because I think this is a, a very serious problem, concept, question that the church needs to be ready to answer in some way. I want to talk to you about four things every Christian should know about evil. Four things every Christian should know about evil. Uh, I want you to go with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and just hold it open on your lap, have it ready on your phone. That's actually the last verse that we're going to be reading. For the sake of time, I have several points that I want to give you, so I'm just going to be reading portions of Scripture. But the last one I'd like us to read together, uh, because there's power uh, in the Word of God. Amen? Amen? So I'm just going to pray very briefly, and then we'll get started. Holy Spirit, I ask you for your help today. God, for all of us, Lord, not just for me to speak, but for all of us to hear, oh God, what you would have us believe about yourself. God, anywhere that, any heart in this room, Lord, that has been having a hard time believing that you're good. Lord, anyone who's been overwhelmed by headlines, who's been overwhelmed by personal experiences, and they found themselves wondering how a good God could allow such evil to happen in his world. Lord, I'm praying that today, You would get us beyond those doubts and those fears, oh God, and those questions, Lord. You have proven who you are. We know what kind of God we're approaching today. And Lord, I ask you to give us the faith to see that one more time and to believe it, to lay hold of it. God, I pray that you would overwhelm the lies of the enemy that are trying to drown out your goodness in our hearts, Lord God. Father, may we leave this house today more persuaded than ever before that God is everything he says he is and he never fails. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen and amen. I was up here last month and I I did a teaching called What Do I Do With My Pain? And we talked a lot about how Jesus, by revealing his love, helps us to overcome places of our lives where we've been defined by abuse, where we've been defined by lack, by neglect, by hurt, basically where we've been defined by evil, specifically evil that's imposed on us by other people's actions. And, you know, I had a lot of really positive response to that teaching. People said they got a lot out of it, but there were some who wrestled with very real questions. And I don't have a problem with that at all. I think good Christian teaching shouldn't just produce answers. It should also produce more questions. It it should lead to people really analyzing, all right, if this is God's truth and this is my reality, how do these things go together? And we're ready to examine our world and, and the situations that we face in light of what the word of God tells us. And a person came up to me and I want to tell you one of the questions that actually inspired this teaching today, but they came up to me and they said, why does God allow kids to be born into situations that he knows will be abusive? Why does God permit that? And I'm thinking, why does he do that? You know? I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to have answers that I don't. That would be hypocritical. It would be arrogant. 
you know, and there are some things we're not going to know in an absolute sense on this side of eternity. Yesterday, my, my wife and my son are here with me for the weekend and we, we just made a, a day of it yesterday and we showed my little guy the city. He's four now, so there's a lot more he can take in and I can't tell if he was more excited about riding the subway or getting to the World Trade Center, but everything was an adventure. So he rode the subway, uh, all the E-train, the e all the way down uh, to the World Trade Center. We went up to the top of the tower and he was just taken in the views. It was awesome. When you see a look of wonder in a little kid's eyes, it, it's just amazing. There's something so special about that. And then we got down to the bottom of the tower and we went to the memorial, you know, where the, the old places were the buildings, the twin towers once stood and you have the waterfalls there now. And, you know, we're standing there and we're looking in the hole and, you know, he, he started asking me, daddy, what, what is this? What, what are the waterfalls about? And I told him, well, these are where the, the twin towers once stood. He said, what happened to them? And so I started telling him about what I saw on the news when I was 15 years old in my nine o'clock biology class and where all of you, uh, the experience you had, maybe some of you were there, maybe some of you were watching it on TV, but those of us that lived through it, we will never forget where we were or what we were doing because that moment defined us as a nation. It defined us in so many ways. And I get done telling him everything and he's four, he's four, but he's dangerously smart. And so he, he looks at me and he says, daddy, I wish, I wish Jesus would have held the tower so God could have saved everybody, you know? And it kind of led into this whole discussion of, you know, why, why didn't he do that? Why does God allow these bad things to happen? I mean, he's in control, right? Isn't, isn't this his world? How, how can he allow such things to take place? And again, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to have answers that are way above my spiritual pay grade, if I could put it that way. But in the, in, and it's not the first time that I've been asked questions about evil. And, and it never is too early for people to notice those things and ask those questions. He's four. And he's wondering why. Why did those bad guys fly that plane into that building? Why did they do that? Why didn't Jesus stop them? He's four. And he's asking these questions. And the more you grow up and the longer you live in this evil world, the more you're impacted by evil. The more you watch your friends and your family be impacted by evil, the deeper these questions run. And I think the last thing in the world that we need to do as the church is play ostrich and kind of hide our heads in the sand. Well, just don't doubt God and just kind of throw a blanket statement over it. Listen, the truth of the gospel can stand up to any doubting question. It can stand up to any bit of unbelief that rears its head against it. And I'm not afraid to pose these questions to us in the house of God because truth reigns here. And again, we cannot step back and say, well, we know exactly why God permits certain things to take place. But I wanna give you four pillars of truth today that I think do give us clarity and insight in how we can deal with the reality of evil. I wanna give you four Christian principles that can keep our hope grounded when we see more bad headlines come through the news, when stuff hits close to home, what do we do? How do we respond? And the first principle that I want to give you is this, and they'll be appearing on the screen as we go through them. But the first principle is this. God has proven what he's like. God has proven what he's like. He's already settled the fact that he's good and that he's trustworthy. Listen to Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's character is revealed most explicitly in his redeeming love. It is in the cross that you get the clearest portrayal of what kind of God we're talking about. What kind of God Jesus is. This is a God who was willing to die for his enemies. That's who he is. When you make your own suffering and pain, when you make the evil of this world the starting point by which you evaluate the love of God, you're always going to wind up in misunderstanding. God has already shown us who he is. And when we allow other things but his self-revelation to define him, we're going to get a warped image of what he's like. We're going to get a warped picture of his character. The cross proves what kind of God we're serving. He's good. He's good. And also, secondly, there's a sub-point there. God is not responsible for people's abuse of his good world. He's not responsible for people's abuse of his good world. I want to give you a little analogy that I often give my students. If you've ever heard of the Nobel Prizes, I'm quite sure we all have. They're the most, probably the most prestigious awards that you can receive in, in the arts and sciences. And they were founded, of course, by a man named Alfred Nobel. But what not a lot of people know about Alfred Nobel was that not only did he institute these prizes that we strive to receive today in different disciplines, but he also invented dynamite. That's actually what made him rich. He's the inventor of dynamite. He was really into explosives. What's really funny, though, is he was a radical pacifist. Hated violence. Absolutely abhorred warfare, but he liked to blow stuff up, which is really you know, like an oxymoron, if you think about it. But he was into engineering and industry. He wanted to improve mining. He wanted to make excavation better. And he thought, what better way to do, to do that than explosives? And it was interesting because he actually had a unique opportunity to find out how people perceived him and his field. Because one of his nitroglycerin factories exploded one day in the city of Cannes in France. And his brother died in the explosion. But the obituary was written about him, about Alfred. So imagine waking up one morning and you're reading your own obituary in the newspaper and you find it exactly what your neighbors thought of you. And the headline for his obituary said this, the merchant of death is dead. And the opening paragraph said, Alfred Nobel, the man who became rich by finding more ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Imagine. He's being totally misunderstood. He's being perceived as a violent, greedy man because someone else abused his creation. It's not too difficult for us to find another person who can relate to that where a creator is being misunderstood, being totally misrepresented because other people have abused a good thing that he made. And that's exactly what we do to God every single day. The creator created something with a good intention. Alfred Nobel had no intention of blowing up bank vaults or blowing up people or causing death when he invented dynamite. He wanted to improve quality of life for people. He wanted to make engineering go forward, but because other people took his creation and abused it and used it in a way that he never would have approved of, people started making judgments about him. And this is what we do with God. God gave man freedom. 
He gave man choice. He gave man the ability to procreate, but we abuse our kids. He gave man the ability to love, but we take that and manipulate so that we feel loved and appreciated. We take the good things God has given us and we corrupt them. But that does not mean that God is responsible. If you get in a car accident, God forbid, it would never cross your mind to sue the Ford family because Henry Ford invented the automobile. And if he hadn't bothered with his invention, we never would have gotten in this car accident today. You don't hold the creator responsible for the abuse of his creation. You don't do that. We don't have the right to hold God responsible for the way his creatures abuse the powers that he's given them. We don't get to make assumptions or bad judgments about his intentions or his character because other people have crossed lines that he never intended them to cross. We don't have the right to do that. God gave people a choice because he wants us to do what with it? He wants us to love him. Love is volitional. I can make my laptop tell me anything. I can program a screensaver to come up and say, Nick is awesome. That doesn't mean it loves me. It doesn't mean it even really thinks I'm awesome. It's simply responding to a function. But if God can give a creature a will and the power to act on that will and to make a choice, now he shows a lot of interest in you because he wants to win your heart. He wants to win your love and win your affection. He wants you to choose to give that heart to him. But because of sin and our inborn sinfulness, we choose to hold our hearts back for ourselves very often. And we choose to take the freedoms that should be yielded back to God in worship and use them for our own ends. And this is actually where our second principle comes into play. Choice is God's blessing that man makes a curse. Choice is God's blessing that man makes a curse. Listen to Genesis 1, 27 through 30. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So right from the beginning, God shows that he made man in his image. He made them to reflect him. We were given unique capacities that no other creature in the world was able to do. And look at some of the things he says, be fruitful and increase in number. So he wants us to multiply. Now that's something any creature can do. Reproduction is written into nature, but man was meant to do that as well. But the fact that we can reproduce doesn't mean we're going to automatically treat our kids in a godly manner. So why does God allow kids to be born into situations that might be abusive? Well, it seems to me that certain things are kind of in moral neutral, if you will. They are neither good nor bad. They are opportunities for good or bad. And we're going to be held accountable for the way we use those freedoms. Human beings are powerful, powerful creatures. You look at what we're able to do, what we're able to produce, and God endowed us with that power because he wanted us to be like him. But there is coming a point where there will be accountability for the exercise or the abuse of that power. If you'll look again at the screen, I want to give you two sub points under that. As God's image bearers, we can exercise wonderful 
but dangerous freedoms. Wonderful, but dangerous freedoms. But we'll be held accountable for what we do with those freedoms. Listen to Romans 1, 18 through 21. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says that what has been made, the created order, is evidence enough to at least indicate to the human heart that there's someone bigger than me out there. And that's why people are accountable to God ultimately for the things that they do on a very basic level. He says, this is why people don't have an excuse. Now, the thing we have to catch here is that you are part of the created order. The freedoms that you and I are able to exercise are meant to awaken our hearts to the reality that God is there. When we look at the mountains, when we see the beauty of the heavens, when we look at the miracle of new life forming in the womb and then being born nine months later, those things should humble us in worship. But we've done the opposite. We become inflated and arrogant and we think we've outgrown God. And you think about how our intellectualism, our, our discovery, the thing that God ordained for us to do, he said, have dominion over the earth. I give the whole thing to you. Harness its resources and use it to to further this kingdom that I'm establishing through you instead of humbling ourselves and making God great through discovery. We've only made ourselves greater. We've made him smaller. We've pushed him out of our schools. God has no place in learning. God has no place in discovery. If you're really discovering truth, you don't need God anymore. We're guilty. We have incredible power as human beings. You think about the mind that God has given us. His image has been marred in mankind, but not erased. We still have an incredible mental ability that no other animal on this planet has. You think about what we're able to create, what we're able to do, not just scientifically, but think about even artistically. Read some poetry. The things that even sinners are able to communicate by putting a pen to a page. My goodness, it's beautiful. It captures what's going on inside of our hearts and it it speaks to us on a deep level. And what a crying shame when we take this awesome power, we take all this beauty that God has endowed us with and we don't give it back to him and we hurt each other with it and we hurt ourselves with it or we celebrate things that are completely unlike God. We're gonna be held accountable for the way that we use these freedoms. The Bible says, Our abuse of God's image proves that we deserve his judgment. And so when we talk about this question, again, I'm just referring back to it because it it was the seed that was sown into my heart and kind of birthed this whole teaching. The way people treat their children is something God is going to call them into account for. The way that we handle the good things that he gives us, the powers that we exercise as God's image bearers are going to put us in a place of guilt before God if we don't render to him the worship through that freedom that he's due. As a Christian, I will answer to God for the way I father my son. I know that, and that's in my mind every single day. 
And it makes me think about how am I representing God to him? What, what am I making Jesus look like in the way that I treat this little guy, in the way that I interact with him, the way that I talk with him, the way that I discipline him? Because as a believer, I'm going to be held accountable. But all mankind, the Bible says, will answer for the way they've used the freedoms that God has given them. There are things that are in moral neutral. They're neither right nor wrong. You get to do it because you're human. But you will answer for the way that you do it. You'll answer for what you do with that power or that freedom that's been given to you. Whether it's the ability to be creative, the ability to procreate, the ability to love and receive love. If we don't yield those things back to God in worship, we're going to put ourselves in a place where we actually prove that we merit the judgment of God. A day of accountability is coming. The third principle the third principle, and this one you might not be expecting too much, but it's, it's really important. Life is still beautiful. Life is still beautiful. This is a big one. And we, we as Christians don't talk about this enough. We do live in a fallen world. We live surrounded by ugly, evil people and actions and behaviors every single day. But the beauty of life is still there. And God left it there. God hasn't let sin swallow up this whole entire world. Let, let me give you the first subpoint, then I'll explain a little bit. God reminds us in the little things that this is still his world. He reminds us in the little things that this is still his world. Listen to Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 through 10. He says, go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is dealing with this whole issue that, you know what? Life is hard. Life is ugly. Life is messy. Life is unpredictable. You might as well enjoy what you can. And the moments that you get to enjoy are actually a blessing from the Lord. A conversation with a friend. How many times, I know everyone in this room has had at least one experience like this. When you're just down, you've got life weighing on you and someone comes and puts that hand on your shoulder and says, are you okay? And it's like, you feel like, man, that, that helped in and of itself. That's from the Lord. Those are the beautiful moments in life to remind us, that, hey, it's still good. Life can still be beautiful. Conversations with friends, the beauty of family, the first time I held my little boy, it was like, life makes sense now. This is what it's all about. Like, this is everything, you know? Not that moment, but the ongoing journey that was going to come after it. It's like, this is what makes life meaningful. Have good food. Let's go there. Hallelujah. Life is beautiful. And you think, I mean, you're in New York. We walked by the street bazaar yesterday. It was on, a, my good, I can't remember what street it was on, 50th maybe. It was between 8th and, and Broadway. And we were walking through all the sights and the smells. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, there's like five different ethnicities of food right here. I want to try them all. And it all was delicious. Like good food is a blessing from the Lord, you know? But here's the thing. Coffee's another one, but we won't go there. That's another sermon. But anyway, 
all of these blessings God has left for us to remind us that, hey, I'm still here. This world still belongs to me. And these little joys that we get to experience, I call them God's thumbprint in creation. And they're meant to call us back to the reality that someone put all this here. Someone made it for us. And we have two choices. You can either hoard that for yourself and use it for your own selfish gain, or you can yield it back in thanksgiving and worship to the God who gave it to you. Life is still beautiful. And even if you've been really deeply impacted by the reality of evil, maybe you are really bearing some deep scars. You've been hit hard by the things we're talking about and referencing today. Listen, life is still beautiful. Cherish those joyful moments. Cherish those moments that make you feel a little bit better. You know, they're from God. He says it right here in Ecclesiastes. He says, eat your food with gladness. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your family. When he says, always be clothed in white and anoint your head with oil. He's saying, listen, I know you're a dirty farmer, but put on nice clothes every now and then. <laughs> Dress yourself up. Splash some cologne on your neck and, and, and live the high life a little bit. Enjoy it because you know what? You're going to die. That's what he says. Now, Ecclesiastes can be a bit of a dark book. You tread lightly when you read through it. But really, the idea he's drawing at is that, listen, this life is so unpredictable. You need to seize every moment you can. Because those moments where you can experience that practical, everyday kind of joy, the non-miraculous kind of joy, we need that. I'm not downplaying it. But sometimes we need a little Monday through Friday. You know what I mean? When you have those moments where, you know what? It's all right. It's not all bad. Those are from God. Those are little moments of grace where he reminds you, hey, I'm still in charge and I've got you. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. The fourth principle. Oh, I'm sorry. I had one more sub point there under the third principle. Life is beautiful. He reminds us in the little things that this is still his world. And when life is hard, these blessings renew our gratitude and our praise. These blessings are meant to renew our gratitude. The New Testament's not kidding when it commands us in several places, give thanks. Amen. And it says, give thanks in everything. That's not a metaphor. It's very literal. Guys, give thanks for your food. I'm serious. Listen, you don't need to pray blessing like, Lord, please remove all the calories and the clay. It doesn't work like that. He's, he's, he, he's not going to bless your Twinkie like that. You can thank him for the Twinkie, but he's not going to bless it like that. He's like, look, you're free. You can choose right now. Okay. You can thank me for it, but you know, you get to choose whether or not you're going to, you're going to do that. But listen, thank the Lord for your food. You know, when you bow your head before a meal to pray, don't make it a religious exercise. Just, you know, God, thank you that I've got a little something to enjoy for just a moment. You know, <laughs> Maybe it's a long moment. Thanksgiving's coming up. I'm really excited about that. My wife makes this carrot souffle that I could have like several courses of and I, I shouldn't, I won't. I'll discipline myself, but my goodness, give thanks for those little things. They're blessings from God, amen? amen. Fourth principle, and this is where Revelation 21 is gonna come into play. A new world is coming. That's our final principle. A new world is coming. Read with me, Revelation 21. We're going to start at verse 22 and we're going to read to verse five of chapter 22. The apostle John writes and he says, I did not see a temple in the city, speaking of the new Jerusalem, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. 
The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. A new world is coming. And you know what? If we can't step back and say, this is why God permits A, B, and C, we can step back and say, I know what God is going to do about A, B, and C when the time comes. There is a day of justice coming. There is a day coming where God will call into account every wicked deed that every wicked person has ever thought they got away with. I want to tell you something. No one really gets away with anything. Justice is not blind in God's court. Justice is not blind in God's court. Men may be able to deceive human judges. They may be able to cheat human systems, but there's a day coming. And the Bible says that we can set our hope on that day when God will punish and put away all evil for eternity. And it's because of that coming day that we can have hope right now. When the disasters happen, when catastrophe strikes, listen, don't step back and think, oh God, how could you possibly allow this? Listen, I ask those questions still. Sometimes I read a news story, I'm like, God, why? Why? I think we're being dishonest if we try to say, I never asked those questions. Look, some stuff is that horrifying. And if we're not bothered by it, something is wrong. But we've got to bring ourselves to the place where because we so trust the revelation of himself he's given us that we'll couple it with, all right, no, Lord, I don't know why. I don't know why, but I know what you're going to do. I know there's a day coming. You're going to make every evil thing right. You're going to fix the mess and the brokenness that we've brought into this world. You're going to bring a new city. You're going to bring a new heaven, a new earth, and nothing corrupt will ever enter into it again, ever again. And that's our hope. Justice will be done and all evil will be put away forever. All evil will be eternally contained in the, in the lake of fire. The, in the lake of fire, in a way, it's a good thing. And the reason why I say it's a good thing, it's not a pleasant thing, but it's good in the sense that it is the fullest manifestation of God's righteous anger against sin. Right now, he is allowing human freedom to continue. He is allowing human choice to shape this world. And we bring ourselves into a place where it, it, we prove, you know what? We deserve your justice. This world deserves your justice, oh God. And when that day of justice comes, there will be no shutting of the eyes to why it's happening or why it's taking place. And that idea of eternal punishment, people are offended by that. But guess what? This is how God feels about sin. This is how he feels about evil and iniquity and injustice. And that's why we as the people of God, we have to distance ourselves from those things. We walk in his light. 
We walk in agreement with him. And when we see evil, when we see it impacting our world, when we see it gaining a foothold in, in the lives of our family members and of our friends, we go to war. We go to war in the spirit. We hit our knees and we pray and we believe God. Lord, deliver them from that coming day. Lord, don't let them find out on that day that what they're doing is wrong. Lord, awaken their hearts now so they can escape the justice that is coming. Because beloved, I'm gonna say it again. No one gets away with anything in God's court of law. No one does. Some of you are carrying scars because you're still wishing there could be justice. Like, why did that person get away with that? What, why, God, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you stop it from happening? Listen, there's a day coming when justice will be done. We don't delight ourselves in vengeance. That belongs to God. When you allow vengeance to take hold of your heart, it's a form of bitterness. It'll destroy you. But what we are allowed to do, what we're even commanded to do is encourage ourselves I can trust God because I know he's going to have the last word. I can trust him because he will have the final say with this world. The wicked will not get the final say. Satan does not have the final say. God has the final say. And because of that, my hope will not disappoint me. My hope will not disappoint me. And God's people, this is the last point that I'm going to give you. Then we'll go to prayer. God's people will live eternally free from all danger, suffering, and sorrow. We will live eternally free from all danger, all suffering, and all sorrow. You're never going to cry again. You're never going to hurt again. You're never, never going to worry or suffer or hurt again. That time will be past. It will be over and done. There will never be injustice or corruption ever. That's the promise that God has given us. For now, we're in this life. We're in this life. We're in an age when God is allowing human choice and human freedom to continue but he's going to do something about it. And you fix your eyes on that day. Jesus said, when trouble arises, look up because your redemption draws nigh. We fix our eyes on his promise. We're not always going to have answers for why. We don't have that. For whatever reason, God has seen fit to leave his own counsel to himself. Quite frankly, I don't know if we could understand it anyway. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we demand answers because of our sinful nature. That's what happened in the garden. You decide for yourself what's right and wrong. So really, when we're demanding answers from God, it's just our sinful nature being our sinful nature. You explain yourself to me, and then I'll love you. You explain yourself to me, and then I'll follow you. Then, I'll, Beloved, it doesn't work that way. We don't get to set the terms. He has proven who he is. When you were a blind, pitiable, wretched sinner, he thought you were worth dying for. This is the God who died for his enemies so they could become his adoptive children. Don't you try to tell me he's not good. You'll never convince me that he's not kind or that he's not loving. I know the mercy that he had on me. I know the mercy that he had on me. Let's stand together. I just want to give a simple invitation today to two categories of people. And some, some of us might fall into both, but... I'm just wondering if perhaps there are some among us that just, you've been stuck in a place of sadness for so long because you've been, you've been unable to believe that God is good. It's just hard to wrap your mind around the idea that is, is he really loving? Is he really kind? I see what's going on in this world, but maybe in your heart today you realize, you know what, Lord, I've been looking at it all wrong. I've been looking at you all wrong. And maybe you're ready to say, you know what, God, I'm, I'm sorry for, for misunderstanding and misjudging you. And I want to set the record straight. And I believe that you are who you say you are. 
and you want God to just give you a fresh understanding of his goodness and of his love and of his mercy. Because listen, he loves you and he sees where you're hurting and he sees where you've been affected by evil and he cares about it and he's ready to heal your heart. And maybe there's some among us today that you've never committed your life to Christ. You're, you're not a Christian. And maybe it's because you've never been able to get past some of these questions and doubts about evil. You, how can a good God permit this? And, and perhaps today God's speaking to you and you're realizing, you know what? I've been looking at this all wrong. You, forget the evil without. Lord, what about the evil within? I've been so busy looking at the evil in the outside world. I've ignored the evil in my own heart. And you've loved me despite that. We can't hide our eyes from that, folks. When you understand the mercy that you've needed, the mercy that you have received, though undeserving, you get a much clearer picture of what kind of God we're talking about today. Lord Jesus, we want to start by acknowledging who you are, that you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, you proved that you were good by creating us to begin with. Lord, you, you didn't even need us. You're God. You're infinite. You're perfect. You didn't need to add anything to yourself. This wasn't, Lord, it was out of your generosity and your love that you created man. You knew all the trouble that we would be and you still thought that we were worth making. You still thought that we were worth loving. God, that, that in itself proves what you're like. But Lord, then you went even further than that. You didn't just create us, you saved us. And while we were sinners, you died for us. And God, I thank you for that. Lord, thank you that not one of us has had to try and fix ourselves before you began pursuing us, Lord. God, I thank you that you have proven conclusively what you are like. And Lord, I'm asking that you would forgive us for every time we've allowed our pain to define who you are. Lord, forgive us for allowing the evil acts of other people to shape our view of you, oh God. Lord, we humble ourselves before your cross today. And we look at that. We look at that act of redeeming love. We look at you, Jesus, and we speak to our own hearts and we say, we know who God is. We know what God is like. And Lord, we say it in the face of all the evil that has impacted us. We say it in the face of the evil that surrounds us in this world. Lord, may we declare till our dying breath, the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. And Lord, we ask, oh God, that you would, you would endow us with power by your Holy Spirit as your people, as your church, Lord, endow us with power to confront the evil that we see in this life. God, I pray that you would move us, oh Lord, move us, oh God, in the ministries of healing, Lord Jesus Christ, for, for the brokenhearted. Lord, those who have been impacted and are impacted by evil every day. Lord, if it's healing by giving of ourselves in places where there's starvation and hunger and there's deprivation. God, if it's, it's, a healing of, if it's a healing ministry that shows itself by going in to fight for justice, Lord, where there's oppression. Lord, if it's a ministry of healing that, that shows itself by praying for the sick or, or even going into the medical field. God, if it's a ministry of healing that, that shows itself by, by, becoming, by becoming a counselor or evangelist and reaching to people that are broken in heart. God, just move through us by your spirit to do something about darkness, oh God. Lord, we're not going to sit back in our questions and just be overwhelmed by what is God like? How can, how can a good God know? You're already doing something about evil, Lord. You already died. You already went to the cross and now you've left your church here. Lord, we're your answer, oh God. We are your answer to evil until you return.
So God, help us to rise up and be your voice, O Lord. Help us to rise up and be your hands and feet extended to this generation, O God. Lord, I pray that the skeptics would lose their arguments when they see the way you love through your church, when they see the way that you rescue through your church, O God. Lord, I pray that you would destroy arguments against the goodness of God through the way that we love, through the way that we evangelize, through the way that we reach out, O God. Lord, you've taken broken people like us and you've made us your answer. You are making us your solution, God. God, help us to walk this calling out, O Lord. And Father, help us to wait for that day. God, help us to wait and long for that day that you come back and you make everything right. Lord, where you put evil away for eternity, you bring healing to the nations, O God. Lord, where every broken heart is mended, Lord, where every oppressed person is set free. God, that's what your word tells us is coming. That's what lies ahead of us. So God, help us to fix our eyes on Calvary until that day comes. Lord, help us to make war in the spirit, God, with those those mighty weapons that you've given us, your promises, your Holy Spirit, prayer, worship. Lord, help us to fight well. Help us to fight a good fight as long as we're here, God. Father, thank you, Lord, that your love is stronger than the things that we see going on in the news. So Lord, help us in every way, in every case, God. And Lord, I just wanna pray for those here personally, Lord, those who have personally been impacted. God, they've had a hard time believing that God could be good. And Lord, maybe for those who have even come and they've, they've just refused to believe in you because they couldn't understand how God could be good. But Lord, they're here now. Lord, they're here now. And God, I'm praying that you would mend their hearts, Lord. Lord, I'm praying that you would reveal your love to them, God. You've already proven it. Now, Lord, help them to see it. Do something supernatural and miraculous. God, let their hearts awaken to the goodness, the goodness and the mercy that you've already shown and that you do show every single day. God, you're the only, Lord, you're the only way this life can have any meaning. Lord, you're the only way this life can make sense. It's so messy. It's so ugly. But God, you've given us yourself in the midst of it all. And you've given us a promise of a glorious day that's coming. Lord, we fix our eyes on that today. We love you. And we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you.